Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. On this episode, we discuss Swimmer's sophomore LP, Berkeley's on Fire. Oakland, California Swimmers is the rare band that has been able to take the sound and attitude of punk and form it into something that sounds both fresh and is enjoyable to listen to. I first took notice of the band in 2013, as did many others, when they signed to Rise Records under the name Emily's Army. But brothers Cole and Max Becker, along with drummer Joey Armstrong, had already been plugging away at music starting in 2004. They've since released several EPs and changed their name to Swimmers, all while breaking out from under the often looked down upon trait of having a famous family member. After all, drummer Joey Armstrong is the son of Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong. They would first solidify themselves as being worthy of the worldwide attention on their own merits by releasing their debut LP, Drive North, in 2016. And now the group has dropped their sophomore album, Berkeley's on Fire. It's a record that sounds dangerous and sonically adventurous, complete with pointed social commentary that I honestly can't stop listening to. I spent a nice warm afternoon chatting in the Atlantic Records studios with the guitarist and singer Max Becker. Max is going to start by telling us some more of Swimmer's story. My brother Cole and I have been friends with Joey, our drummer, since since we were three, four, and five, and we are right now 23, 24, and 25, so 20 years. And we were always into like sports, and we always did stuff together. We played soccer, we were always competitive with each other, but when School of Rock came out, it came out when we were 9, 10, and 11, and the kids in that movie were 9, 10, and 11, and so we were like, oh my god, we can do this. You know, add in a little bit of the fact that Joey's dad is Joey's dad, and we were getting exposed to music in all sorts of ways in 2004 and we immediately started writing songs day one and we had a couple iterations as we were talking about before this went on we were called emily's army for a long time like throughout high school brief signing to rise and a couple tours our first international tour in the uk it was really rad but it was always kind of like this teenage thing that we it was (laughs) semi-pro you know we were still in high school and we didn't know what to do we just knew we had to tour you know, we played shows to four people in Trenton, New Jersey, and we we like we f- did what people can say whatever they want to say about us, but at least we've we've put in now. We started playing shows a couple years after we started the band, so we've been playing shows for ten years at, collectively as a group of people, and so we've put in the time as twenty three, twenty four years, twenty five year olds. But right around twenty fourteen, this thing happened where we were all in college. We decided we didn't want to be a pop punk band anymore because. We only started as a pop punk band because that was the easiest thing to do. And that's generally what it is. But we kind of had this unique opportunity where we had these fans and we and we were listening to different music at the time. I mean, my favorite band was the Vaccines in 2014. And that was not where we were as a band. And I wanted to get there. And so we collectively decided we wanted to do a massive, massive change and actually start doing this full time. So we took time off of school. We changed our name to Swimmers. We eventually met. Zach from Fiddler, who produced our first record, and he kind of brought us on this cool path towards the Beechcroft world and the and the surf punk world of Orange County, which is we actually are surfers, and so we were we were finally felt like we were playing music that was more reflective of who we were, whereas when we were teenagers, we were just playing pop punk to play pop music or to play pop punk and it really started taking off for us, and we got some tours, and we did the record with Zach, and then 
on that first headline tour on Drive North, we met everyone from this lovely record label. Each person showed up to a different show. We met Pete. We met Mike. We met this guy, Jason, who works radio in Denver. We met a lot of people from Fuel By and for Atlantic that were starting to take an interest in us. And and then we all met them at a meeting out here. And then we they were like, okay, so we're going to re-release Drive North with two extra songs. And on Drive North, it was mostly my brother Cole singing. And the idea was like we were being marketed as this like punk band with a slightly new sound, like a modern mix pretty much like it was mixed in a very modern way the guy who engineered both of frank ocean's records mixed drive north which is like if you want to get really into it the guitars were turned a lot lower than most rock records would and the the bass and drums were we put samples in there we had uh i think we had a kick sample in there that was on like a frank ocean record so it was cool for us to kind of step into a new world but it was mostly cole singing and it was very much towards his political thing and then all of a sudden we re-released drive north with one of my songs called lose it and it started to do really well and it was a like a slower love song and so then all of a sudden we realized and everyone realized that we could market us as like a two singer band where we have someone doing the love songs and someone doing the political songs and we switch up a little bit once in a while i mean i technically wrote palm trees but cole sings it but that made it so that we had this really fun angle for the label to work with for everyone and then so since then that was we re-released in 2016 fast forward to now they've put in tons of faith on in us we got to record a record with rich Cossie, who's like our dream producer he really pushed us artistically and we couldn't be happier with where we're at right now and it feels like the sky's the limit and so it really has come a long way from where we started on the label side, Pete Gambarg, who's the head of A&R for Atlantic and Electro Records, was helping steer the ship. He's going to talk a little bit here about some of the direction he gave the band. When we signed Swimmers, we signed them a few years ago. They already had most of an album finished, and that was an album that they had done with a producer named Zach, who is the lead singer and principal songwriter and creative mind behind the band Fiddler. So my job at that point is to come in and help polish the whatever loose ends are remaining. And But it was pretty much a completed thought at that time. We added a few new songs, we buffed and shined, and then re-released the album on Fuel by Ramen. When it came time to do this record, that was when, for the first time, the band and I were able to roll up our sleeves and say, okay, what do we want to do? So now I'm going to let Max talk about what exactly they did want to do with this record. Well, a lot of bands we know actually came out with really bad follow-up records. I won't name drop them, but (laughs) it seemed really depressing. It seems like every first record is the party, and then every second record is people get way too emotional and like introspective. And so we wanted to do the exact opposite. And we decided like, hey, you know, let's build off of the strength of the re-release. So like, I'll have some songs and we'll go, I'll do my thing. And Cole, you be an in- more intense version of yourself. And it ended up working. I mean, we, we, we also had two and a half years to write it. Since between the time of Drive North coming out and Burgos on Fire coming out, we toured with Fiddler, but we also toured with All Time Low, two completely different fan bases. So with Fiddler, it's like we knew how to work the punk crowd. With All Time Low, we started to learn how to... They're, they're 
putting out pop music at the time. I mean, they're, it's not old all-time low. It's like the new all-time low. At first, it was a little hard for us because we didn't know what to do coming off the Fiddler tour, but we learned a ton, and we learned to write songs for bigger spaces. So you look, you listen to the songs on the new record. For me, the song, like a song that I that I wrote that I like to talk about is Too Much Coffee. Sonically, sounds way bigger for a bigger space, a little bit more approachable than any of the songs I wrote on Drive North, and that was completely on purpose. And we wanted to be... You know, Drive North was the hors d'oeuvres. We wanted Brooklyn's on Fire to be like first course. And people haven't gotten the main course yet. It, it's coming. But this is definitely the best first course we could come up with. Max just mentioned a small detail there that's easy to overlook. He talked about writing for a space. So I had him elaborate on that a little bit. So there is this book by David Byrne called How Music Works. So the main concept is everyone used to think that music was created because of the materials given, but he argues that it's for the space that you're a part of. And so we, and he goes, you know, CBGBs, like Talking Heads wrote songs for CBGBs. And, you know, drumming became a thing in the Sahara because there was no acoustics. And so it was the only thing you could hear. You weren't, you couldn't hear a guitar a hundred feet away, but you could hear the drums. So it's about the space. And so we decided, okay, what is the space? And Drive North, the space was punk shows. We wanted to set the tone and we wanted to be a beach gothy punk band because that was what was cool at the time and who we were at the time. We were just turning 21 so we were drinking and you know smoking weed and like doing all this stuff dying our hair and that was that sound for them but then we decided okay like we want to be the biggest band in the world. Beach goth that was one small step in our hopefully long career and we want to be fucking huge. How do we start doing that? Well, the next record's got to sound a little bit bigger, bigger space. We, thank God, Pete, our and our guy, got us in a room with Rich Costi because just sparks flew. It was insane. And we couldn't believe that he liked us so much because we're he's worked with some of the best bands ever that we all look up to. And he was like, yeah, like you guys seem like you get it. I was like, okay. As a huge fan of Rich Costi's work, I have to say Swimmers is a little bit outside of what I normally see him do. So I wanted to ask Pete a little bit about the choice to have these two meet. I think whenever you are trying to suggest a creative partnership for an artist, you know, you're kind of like the matchmaker from Fiddler on the Roof. You're like, the way she sees and the way he looks, it's a perfect match. So these guys have a certain thing about them where they view the world a little differently. And they have grand aspirations, but in a very genuine, very honest, very admirable way. They have something to say. They have something important to say. And Rich, as a record producer, is somebody whose records have always touched on that. And I thought that that combination could work. And Rich is an incredible record producer and also an amazing mix engineer. He's worked with everybody from Muse on down. It's kind of a band's guy, you know, like a real band guy. Very smart, very intelligent in terms of how he approaches production. And Rich and I had never worked together. I'm just a fan of his music. And I reached out to him and sent him some of the band's early demos for the next record and had them all meet and it was a mutual love fest i then got max to talk a little bit more about what happened during that love fest we met with four producers in one day and every meeting felt like it took forever but it really was only like 20 minutes and then his meeting felt like it took 20 minutes but it was really two hours and he just we barely even talked about songs he just wanted to know what we were interested in and we realized like neither of us were satisfied at where rock is 
and neither of us are, feel like the envelope is being pushed sonically. And uh, people could, like, some people would think about us, like, what do you mean? Like, you're a pop punk band. It's like, no, we're not. We're really not. Like, we are our favorite bands. You would freak out if you saw what we listened to. You know what I'm saying? And Rich is the same way. The sparks were flying when we decided, fuck, like, rock is so backwards and nostalgic and that's fine and you can do that but that is not what we want to do we want to go back to the front lines what's new with rock how do you do something new with rock and he initially thought we had to go back to tape i was like dude (laughs) and at first we were like yeah like let's go back to tape and he's like but then we realized he's really meticulous and it would have taken us like six months to record a record on tape it took two which drive north took two weeks so that's another difference in songs. We recorded Drive North in two weeks, Burke was on fire in two months, but thank God we didn't record it to tape. Doesn't matter. We're not purists. We do, though, want something to sound new. We looked at a lot of hip-hop references. We looked at a lot of Damon Albarn references because we feel like people like him and a lot of hip-hop artists like on SoundCloud, all this kind of stuff, they care more about making something sound new rather than how they got there. I guess that makes sense. So some of the songs... On the record, I mean, the rhythm guitar for Berkeley's on Fire is 1940s vintage Moscow, like, 5-watt amp. And it wasn't because that was the perfect thing. It's because it was the newest thing. It's like, we could have used a $6,000, you know, vintage Marshall to get that sound, but what's the point? I mean, those are all beautiful amps. We're not in it for the name dropping. We want it just to sound perfect. And that was part of the thing with Rich. He's like, I don't care how we get there. Let's just make it sound fucking perfect, and we're not going to stop until it does. We're now going to hear from Rich about his initial impressions of the band. Like I said, he's one of my favorite producers of all time, and has worked with some of my favorite bands like Mew, Death Cab for Cutie, Mars Volta, and literally hundreds of others. So I wanted to get his perspective on what he saw in the band. If you go back and look at like the development of any kind of what you would say is a band, they typically come... The history of that whole concept actually stems from sort of almost like a gang affiliation from the 50s. And it's this idea that it's a group of people who are together, united in some kind of ideology, in this case, like a musical ideology. And typically the appeal is that you want to like be near them because they're unobtainable in some kind of way in your own life. You can't attain that sort of status or music or coolness or whatever. In that way, I felt like as soon as I met these guys, they had that thing where it just felt like, okay, this is a unique collective of individuals that have their own kind of local culture within the world that they're inhabiting and they're building that culture and spreading it. And so from that point of view, like I also saw that there was more of a rhythmic aspect to what was going on, particularly like Cole's vocals are pushing that aspect more than a lot of other things. I, you know, I guess maybe they come from more of a pop punk background. I don't know if they would cop to that, but like, I didn't see them that way. I don't really listen to that kind of music either. So that's probably why I didn't see them in that light because I don't really have the background to like say, oh, you guys sound like this band or that band. I just saw them as a band that could push more in kind of like a riffy rhythmic direction that was almost like kind of like a Clash or Beastie Boys kind of thing, which is, and it was clear that 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 was an interesting area for them as well. Like right away, they were talking about, particularly like the Sandinista period of the Clash was really interesting to them. And that was a time when the Clash were picking up all kinds of influences. Uh, They were kicking around New York City at the time you know, largely hip-hop-based or, or even Puerto Rican rhythmic-wise and all kinds of things were getting thrown into their stew. That's kind of how I saw them. I didn't see them as like, you know, mic up the drums and bang out some guitars. The sort of traditional quote-unquote rock records never really interest me that much anyway. 
Next, I wanted to talk to Max about how the dichotomy of him and Cole's styles shaped the record. Cole is very intelligent. He went to Cal, and he has always been well-read, pays a lot of attention to very progressive ideas. And so a lot of his lyrics are very political. Burke was on fire, for example. It's all about how a lot of stuff gets skewed in the news and how we need to try to search for our, our own truth, really, within that. And whereas I like to sing about, like, okay, like, yeah, all that shit's going on in the world, but I still got to take out the trash. You know, I still have to wash my dishes, and I still have to clean my clothes and focus on myself. And so what's cool is you have this pendulum on the record of that happening, lyrically. You got songs like Berkeley, or you get songs like Hellboy, which is about Charles Manson, or pretty much like the system creating psychopaths like Charles Manson. That's pretty much what it's about. It's not just about him, but it's about how we don't pay enough attention to the mental health of a lot of people and how we end up creating our own worst enemy sometimes. But then you've got Ikea Date, which is literally... You know, when you're in a band, you're in a long-distance relationship nine times out of ten. So it's it's just a true story. I literally had a dream where in my dream, I was playing house with my girlfriend, and then I woke up, and I was alone. And it's like, how the hell can that exist on the same record as the Charles Manson thing? But for some reason, because we're brothers and because we're really honest with what we do, and we have so many different kinds of listeners, it works. And that was the concept, was big-picture ideas, but then hone it in and also focus on yourself. That's the main concept of the record. Next, I asked Max about the actual process of making and writing the record. It always changes for us. I mean, we've been writing songs now since day one, 15 years ago. Um, but the way it's usually been for a long time is Cole will write a song on the guitar, and then I'll write a song on the guitar, and then we'll bring it to the band. But what was different about this record is we each song had a lot more time to bake. So, like... Ikea Date and Too Much Coffee were written in fall 2015. And then I put Ikea Date away for two years. Didn't listen to it. I had a garage band demo. And we pretty much did the exact same thing as the demo. When they were like, do you have any other sounds? I was like, yeah, here. And they're like, wait, what? Like, let's do this. And then we did it in the studio. But then we pretty much like recreated the demo one step at a time. So that like we didn't do anything live at all. And then for Cole, Burke was on fire. He came up with that weird like Sean Paul beat. Like the dun 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 That was like him, and he's like, yeah, like I've been listening to like some reggaeton, and <laughs> I, I want to put rock and that beat together, and so he wrote that on GarageBand, and then I think each song had enough time to, like I said before, like bake in the oven, and right when we took them out, it's kind of perfect. But that's usually the writing process: is I will have an idea, and I'll go to Joey. And then Cole will have an idea and he'll go to Joey. And it kind of starts with there. And then we'll do a demo. And then we put it away for a while. And then we bring it back out if new ideas. And it's constantly editing it. Okay, so the first song on the record is Berkeley's on Fire. We want someone to feel like, okay, they just went to a riot and they're going home to their room really upset. But the the space is this big space where a lot of people are and it's upsetting and everyone's jumping. And, and then you go home and all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I need to start thinking about my personal life. And so you open your closet and it's fucking Narnia. And all of a sudden, too much coffee turns on. And literally, the vision is 
Narnia, like this massive world in your room. And that's why the harmonics are literally there to make you feel like it's this big space. Speaking of spaces, one of the other most determinative spaces for a record is the studio you make it in. So I wanted Max to talk a little bit about that. We recorded in Santa Monica. It was fucking amazing because, as I said before, we're surfers. And so we lived in Santa Monica, literally woke up, surfed every single day. Every single day we're in the studio, I was in the water on a surfboard beforehand. And it was awesome. Got us into a great headspace. We rode our bikes two miles to the studio on the boardwalk. The studio is right by the Santa Monica Pier, which is usually hectic, but it's hidden. And we, because we rode our bikes, we didn't have to park. It's Rich's home studio. He had just switched there for Death Cab like three, four months before us. It's funny because the whole last album was about hating LA, but we had a wonderful time and we lived our best life. So we didn't mind that it took two months. You know, every day was really fun. We ate amazing food and the studio was really interesting. It was actually made for like eastern like religious worship at one point like it's kind of made for it looked really weird it's all wooden but it's like one tiny but like long room and he instead of having like a big live room like what we're in right now the live room was the small room and this was the control center so like the big room was like rich in the middle with a swivel chair surrounded as if we were in like star trek surrounded by all of his gear and us and one couch and then if we needed to record something or go to the drum machines then we go to the small spaces it was really fun for us because it felt really collaborative as if we were i don't know like in a hip-hop studio or something where it just feels like everyone can contribute it's psychologically really cool i'd suggest anyone to do it this is rich talking about how his studio space influenced the record and how he saw the band take advantage of it one of the things that I, my studio is in santa monica and it's pretty close to the ocean and one of the things that was interesting is whenever there was downtime for them like if i was editing drums or doing something like that they would make extreme use of that time there was never downtime for the band there were two hours joe would be like okay cool i'm going to the gym and cole would be like oh, i'm gonna go uh, surf for a little bit or i'm gonna go swim and they would they were always doing stuff. I just, I, they were never, ever idle. I don't know that I've ever seen a group of guys like that who just literally made use of every moment of the day. And it was really impressive to see that from a group of young dudes. I went surfing once with them, and they're really good. <laughs> I'm fucking terrible. Drums in my head. My train just cut on fire, and I'm stuck here at the station. Is that Shannon playing on my favorite radio? I can remember the first... One of the crucial defining things of this record is the integration of live drums and drum machines. So I wanted to get Rich's thoughts about how they incorporated that to make it such a cohesive part of the record. Basically, like, you know, every band that I work with, it's usually war on the drummer first, war on drums. And you could talk to almost anyone that I've worked with. And I usually flip the cart over on them. And with these guys, it was just flipping it in a different way, which is that, you know, they really were interested in doing something that felt uh, like some kind of natural progression thematically from where they had been. And I wanted to bring them into the world that I saw them going into. And that involved not necessarily just doing drum programming because, you know, it's important to, to have that as a tool, but then what kind of drum programming? Like anybody can open up 
FL Studio and download a bunch of splice samples and throw some shit on your record these days. And and everyone does do that. And and because of that, it's kind of low-hanging fruit and people's records start to sound the same. So I usually try to take the most uncomfortable route possible for everyone. In this case, that involved using a lot of... We would kind of build up demos initially. Like they came in the studio and the first thing we did, because their demos were fucking terrible sounding, and they would admit that. And the, so the first thing we did is essentially build up better demos. And while we're doing that, we laid down a little bit of drum programming and kind of mapped out what was going to happen. And so then we had, I think we had like an Overheim DMX kicking around and we had a sequential circuits drum machine kicking around. I have a Tempest, but I don't think we use that very much. I think it was mostly those two drum machines. Oh, we use also ST1200 a lot. And ST1200 was cool because we would load it with samples and then we also would sample some guitars. Like a Steve got robbed, all those guitars are coming out of the SP-1200, and they're pitched using the SP-1200. So they have kind of like, it sounds almost like tone loop or something. First, we would like program a bunch of drums on the drum machine, and we wouldn't just sample the drums from that and program it using Logic. We would program the beat on the drum machine, which has a very different feel than programming using Logic or Pro Tools or Ableton or something. Because these old boxes all have some weird janky quantization that is part of the the charm so we would program using those things and then dump it in to logic and then just move the parts around to help build an arrangement and then we would do live drums on top of that and a lot of times after we did that even we would go back to the drum machine and lay down fills that were sometimes just played live using the buttons on the um, drum machines so it was like kind of a real mix of things and it was a little bit of programming in logic too so it was kind of all over the place but i'd say like the main inspiration was we were getting off of those 80s drum machines i did add rich talk a little bit about the logistics of actually accomplishing this on a record well, because I wanted the cymbals to be trashy 80s sampled cymbals coming out of a drum machine. And if you're playing them live, for one thing, you can't turn up the room mics because it'll make the entire drum set trashy. And it's harder to move shit around without affecting the drum set. So a lot of times nowadays people just overdub the cymbals anyway. But in this case, we really wanted that sort of 80s gritty cymbal sound. You can hear it throughout pretty much the whole record. It's the same cymbal every time because it's usually something spitting out of the SP-1200. And, and the whole idea of like doing the toms after afterwards so that we could do just cooler sounding toms than like you know some rock i've worked in a lot of rock music but i've kind of had war on rock for quite some time now and i feel like the genre is calcified a long time ago and that's a whole nother conversation as to why that happened but i've been dead against that pretty much my whole career so i'm trying to always do something a little bit different with whoever it is that i'm working with and trying to just present what they're doing in a different manner and so in that case that meant like i didn't want like big standard rock drums on the record which led to you know us using 80s drum machines and everything and also it felt like the guys just seemed like you could feel this kind of like almost like early beasties energy around them and i wanted to try to jack that a little bit for the record Here's Max talking about how the band got shaped into doing the drums this way. The drum machines were not a thing for us until we entered the studio. We went into the studio fresh off of three years of touring and like pretty much judging a lot of bands for having tracks and all this kind of stuff because we were like, wow, like screw them. Like we can do this all on our own. And then we go into the studio and Rich is like, dude, I just recorded Death Cab's new record. Those guys use tracks. And I was like, fuck, those guys were like one of my favorite bands. I had no idea they use tracks. And he's like, yeah, dude, there's nothing wrong with tracks as long as it's not doing a guitar solo for you. And it's just like, it's not doing the main shit and so and there's nothing wrong with adding elements that you can't do live because it's a different vehicle you have to almost separate them the live show and listening to the record are two completely different things and you have to adjust and he's like he pretty much said to joe he's like look you're an amazing drummer but like 
you want to do something that drummers will respect, start trying to fold in drum machines and what you do at the same time and seeing how hard that is. And sure enough, a lot of our friends who are drummers texted Joey afterwards and they're like, dude, what the hell? Great job. I don't have the balls to do that. <laughs> it was really cool for us. And now it's opened up so many doors for our writing process now. I mean, our third record's going to be hopefully turn us into a stadium band. <laughs> well, the drums were two days on Drive North and the drums were a month on Brooklyn's on Fire. We used to record things, not live, but to live drums. That's how we did our records growing up because that's traditionally what you do. Um, but Joey was actually only set up with kick, snare, and hi-hat. That's it. And even then, sometimes just kick and snare. And it was in a closed room. Like, he has a really great snare collection. He's a world-class drummer. But I think we've had our fair share of seeing, you know, really nice equipment for bands that aren't that successful, or at least new. And we're like, okay, how do we, what do we, what should we do? And Rich and Martin, his engineer, both obsessed with drum machines, vintage drum machines specifically. And they just nerded out. I wasn't as in, I was in it for like, I was like, okay, Joey, you press this here. But I didn't know what he was pressing. I didn't know what the machine was because it was so over my head. It was so new to me. We had a drum machine in there that was Stuart Copeland's at one point and had all of his original cartoon work on the keys. You couldn't make this shit up and it was like being in a playground just to find the right thing. But yeah, we spent a lot of time, I mean, too much coffee, back to too much coffee. Those verses are really intricate and one of the things we decided that rock sometimes misses is detail. Rock used to be listened to through speakers. We listen to rock through headphones. With headphones, you have the potential to hear more details and a lot of the music our generation listens to is through their earbuds or through their headphones and on Spotify. You don't have to stick to a genre anymore, right? So like if someone's used to listening to Sunflower by Post Malone, there's amazing little things going on in there. And there's a lot of emphasis on the intricacies. Similar to, let's just take, I mean, I don't want to give him too much credit because I watched the, the documentary about him, but let's just take a Michael Jackson song where you've got don't stop to get enough. There are so many intricate things going on in that track, and it's a pop track, but people are starting to hear those details, I think, and so we wanted to give them more details. And with too much coffee, if you listen to headphones, you'll hear, like, it's panning left to right often, and it's like, like all these little weird things that the average listener wouldn't care to know, but it, it gives the listener more of a chance to dive deeper into the song. As you can hear from that clip, all this talk about how crazy the drums are is well warranted. While the drums on this record have a distinct and unique sound, the guitars are not to be overlooked as they're constantly playing interesting things that sound unlike most records you've ever heard. So next I wanted to figure out how they came to this interesting take on guitars. Well, what we learned with Rich is that time is not his strong suit. Also, like we have things that aren't our strong suits as well. He's a perfectionist, and luckily we had enough time. We weren't rushed to make the record or anything. We re-recorded almost every song three times. Pretty much, we'll be in the moment, and we'll be recording. Let's just take Lose, Lose, Lose. I mean, that one took forever, because we knew we wanted to make like a crossover song. And it happens to be our biggest song now, like one of our biggest songs, because it crosses over into this like dance slash like borderline hip-hop but rock world and we wanted it to be perfect the guitars we went through pretty much everything was di first just to get the vibe and the skeleton down and then we tear everything apart and like go back in and so the guitars a 
took so long to be intonated properly. Even though we got them all set up, it's a really strange riff. And on my Strat, I recorded almost every song on my white Strat. We had all these nice guitars, but the best sounding one was this white Stratocaster with lace pickups that I had put in. And it just did the trick, every single song. But the problem was, the intonation was so whack, even after we got it set up, and the, it goes 2nd fret to 14th fret, right, on the E string. And that is, when you're in a studio, a big problem. Live, no one fucking knows. No one knows live that when I play that song every day, it's slightly out of tune. Could not, he could not, like, not hear it. And same with Martin. And so we had to go through there so many times. And then it was a problem of the tone wasn't right. And it's like, do we want to make this sound more like Rage Against the Machine? Because that's something they do. They do crossover music. Or do we want to make this more of like a twangier riff? And we found like something in between. We recorded one of it on the bridge pickup, one of them on the neck pickup. And we ended up on the middle pickup for Lose Lose which I had never done in a fucking song before. But it sounded perfect. And the first riff was through this crazy boss pedal thing that Martin brought. And it was what Tame Impala uses. It was so rad, it just took two weeks to get there. <laughs> that's just an example, and that's one song. Here's Martin Cook, the engineer on the record, talking a little bit more about that particular piece of gear. Well, one of the one fun things we did with guitar was I had purchased this little Boss digital multi-track thing, the BR600, which is like this weird little tabletop, you know, very consumer-level multi-track. But I heard that the guy from Tame Impala uses it for guitar tones, specifically for pitch shifting. I had some friends that had used one on some demos years ago and ended up buying one. And I kind of use it when I mix. And I was like, I'll bring this thing in. And we ended up like one day just doing a bunch of guitars through it. So we'd go direct into that with, you know, the guitar instrument cable. And then we would take that and bump it into an amplifier and then send that to the speaker cabinet. So it's kind of this weird, like, pseudo Eddie Van Halen, like, you know, effect pedal to amplifier to cabinet level it was fun it had some really weird sounds and we basically just try different things and i would just scroll through the presets because it's a weird little box and it's kind of hard to navigate menus and we just like oh that's cool that's cool you know like weird pitching effects it was just fun to take a non-traditional approach to finding guitar tones when max and i were off mic we talked about how often people mistake some of the sounds on the record for synthesizers when they're really just guitars so i had him elaborate about that topic a bit we used synth on a couple songs on this record, but it was really for, like, flavor. It wasn't for, like, a main line. I mean, people, again, it's usually people who don't play guitar, but it's like Berkeley's on Fire is, a, is guitar harmonics. That's all it is. But not that many people do it right now, so... Or at least not many people in our world do yes. it right now. Obviously, like, Van Halen's fucking amazing at it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I love Van Halen, but we wanted to just incorporate something new. And it helped make more texture for a bigger space. The other truly standout feature on the record is Cole's vocal performances are just incredible. Here's Rich to talk a little bit about how that came about. I mean, there were a couple of songs that made big changes as we went, partly because somebody would come up with a new part or we'd be at a point where a song really needed development and the right thing would come along at the right time. I mean, I mean, I feel like when we did Berkeley's on Fire, when he delivered his vocal, I was like, that might be the first song we cut vocals on. And it was I was kind of shocked at how not just how good he was, but sort of just how expressive he was in the booth. It was like a, it was like a David Byrne in the booth or something like that. And I think that helped to inform a certain kind of wildness on that track once that track was the first one that came out once that sort of got dialed in that it gave a sort of quality and aesthetic benchmark for the rest of the recording and how to finish the album i mean at that point when i was finishing i thought they weren't even around they were on the road or something i can't remember and here's pete talking about how this vocal performance affected the band and their live performance now 
You know, what was interesting between Drive North and Berkeley's On Fire is that if you saw the band play live during the Drive North cycle, the live show, the lead singer, quote unquote, you know, the, the where your eyes are going was kind of 50-50 between Cole and, and Max. And obviously they're brothers. They do a lot of the writing together. They do a lot of the writing separately. Max writes songs that Cole sings on lead. And I think Max would be the first one to tell you that Cole is an incredible frontman in ways maybe that Max is not. Max is an amazing frontman on his own. But I think the difference between the Drive North cycle and the current cycle we're in with Berkeley's On Fire is Cole is now very much the frontman. And he is very much somebody who you can't take your eyes off of. And I think that's a big change between the last album cycle and this one. If you're going to make a record as amazing as this one, a lot of thoughts go into the standards you're going to uphold. So I want to talk to Max a little bit about what his thoughts on that were. When we first came up with the concept of the record, I'm obsessed with trying to uh, figure out like modern ways to come out the record. I mean, we can all agree most millennials don't listen to a record front to back. And I'm guilty of that. Most people these days, it's like you have so much at your fingertips, you don't have to listen to a record front to back. And you know what? Why would you? Why? And this sounds crazy coming from a rock musician, but why would you spend 40 minutes of your time if you don't even like the whole record? You know, why would you do that? And, you know, time is, is precious in 2019. So much shit is going on. You don't have time to waste your time on like lackluster parts of a record. So the idea was I just made a ton of different playlists of songs by different artists from different eras. And I was trying to figure out if it was possible for a song from the 60s to sound like it worked with a song from 2019. And it did. The idea was, and it happened on shuffle for me randomly when it all clicked, but it was this Kevin Morby song called Dorothy. And it was the end of that song. And then all of a sudden Street Fighting Man came on. And I was like, yo, that sounds perfect together. It's more of an approach of like if you're DJing a party it's like or a barbecue. You know, that's what you would want to hear. You don't want to be like, oh, yeah, another Kevin Morby song. You want to be like, the next song should always be a oh, shit moment. Initially, I didn't want all the songs to sound the same. But I think it really works with like Rich is really fucking good at what he does, especially mixing and producing. And so I felt like starting that concept with more of just having different kinds of songs different kinds of things we're writing would give people that effect like a playlist effect where you could be like okay look it is sonically all on track so we didn't do that idea but if you take lose 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 and go into april in houston those are two two completely different kinds of songs and so you can have that surprise and that's what people want when they press skip or when they listen to the next song it used to be a thing where you wanted like a song to be in the same key as the song before so it's like oh look what a sick transition but that's not what people should be doing. We have fans that have us on their end of year playlist on Spotify where it's us, Brock Hampton, and Selena Gomez. And so why would you put stuff that all sounds the same when everyone just is all over the map? And we're going to keep going with that concept. We're making it more drastic uh, on the next one. Much has been said about Rich's attention to detail and his level of perfection. 
I wanted to ask him a little bit about how he sees that during the process. I hear what I hear. And when usually record making to me isn't just like ticking a bunch of boxes to some people, not not as much now as it used to be, but there's certainly a genre of record making where people would just sort of like tick a bunch of boxes off. Okay, today we're going to do guitars. Today we're going to do this thing. And then like at the end, you get it mixed and that's the record. And to me, it's if you're trying to do something that the, that the band hasn't done before and that you haven't done before, then it's not always that clear when it's done. So you'll get it to a point where you're like, okay, this is it. We've arrived at a new place. Let's listen to it and see how it feels. Like, okay, this is definitely feeling good. However, now that we're at this new place, I can see that this isn't right and that isn't right. And I think that the band haven't really pushed themselves on this kind of level before. So to them, it probably was shocking. But to me, it's, I mean, it's, I work like this all the time. While Max said the collaboration on the record was mostly between the band Martin and Rich, there was an exception. James Russian of Does It Offend You Yet contributed to the song Lonely Ghost. Here's Rich to talk about that. There was a song where actually we had my friend from Does It Offend You come in and do a bunch of programming on because we'd gotten it to a certain point and it was cool and it had this like cool sort of ACDC guitar riff. It needed to go to the next level. And so I rope in my friend from Does It Offend You all the time, James Russian, on certain things. And so we sent the track to him and he went in over weekend and just does what he does, which is basically vomit all over the track with his computer and sent it back to us. And I thought it was super fucking cool. While I said this was the only other outside collaboration, that's not entirely true, as Max is about to explain. Rich and Martin were the only ones. I mean, we forever, I always just like used to ask Joey's dad, like, what do you think about things? But he's usually just like, good job. And or he'd be like, you should try this here. But it was never like, I'm going to write a song with you. And I don't no one wants that because we're all different and also we don't want anything given to us but it was really nice to have his feedback honestly the most of my collaborators are friends and fans i mean if you they're the people your song is going towards it's <laughs> funny funny story is like i needed a ride from deep orange county to the airport and i tweeted can someone give me a ride? And one of our fans picked me up and I showed her some new songs. She dropped me off at the airport. She was really cool. Her name's Sarah. She was like, yeah, like this totally works. It's like, that's a good example. But I also have friends. I have friends that are kind of like all over the spectrum in terms of listening to music. I think everyone has friends, but I have like friends who listen to very basic things. And then I have like my girlfriend and then I have like my family and my dad who is in his fifties and a white male. Like obviously he's going to like, Lonely Ghosts, which is like our most ACDC sounding song. But, you know, I, I show them all the different kinds of people. Just I'm not that person that's like, wow, like you didn't tell me good job. Like, fuck you. I'm never going to write a song again. <laughs> I actually value their opinions because they're consumers. You know, if you think about how you would go about selling any sort of product, like in a, a, if you're marketing it, like you want consumer feedback. There's Yelp reviews for that shit. We don't have Yelp, okay? Well, I have to ask people, and I, I like that, and I like asking my friends. I then asked Max if he could be more specific about how this feedback has helped him. Yeah, I, I, I went through, I asked 20 different people this feedback. I was trying to figure out in Too Much Coffee if I should say, don't tell me how to sing this song or don't tell me how to write this song. It was a really complicated topic for me as a lyricist because I really wanted to make sure with that song that we didn't get too cheesy. It has a lot of potential for getting that way. It sounds great, 
but if it goes too far down to the right side of the spectrum, then it loses the punk fans that we have. So I was like, okay, I am freaking out about this. I texted all my friends from all over the spectrum, and they all gave me different answers. But one of my friends finally was like, look, if you say don't tell me how to write this song, it becomes more about you, and a listener should be thinking the song is about them. And I was like, perfect. So if you say, don't tell me how to sing this song, it's less specific to being a songwriter, even though technically the idea initially was don't tell me how to write the song, meaning like, don't tell me how to create my path in life is the idea, which is a really cheesy topic, but it really helped me be like, okay, that's what we need to do. And I thank them for it all the time because it really helped me out. Next, I wanted to hear some stories about creating a specific song. So Max and I talked about Lose, Lose, Lose. My favorite song Cole's ever written is Lose, Lose, Lose. I think it puts our band on the map professionally and is really a statement song. And the best part about it is that within the first four seconds, it's a go. It doesn't take some long-ass intro. And I think the best story about that song is like every song he usually does is like Joey and I do a separate demo of. Joey and I are very much schemers and we like to figure shit out. Like figuring it out, Cole had that as a demo and then Joey and I went to the studio and did our own version. And then we said, all right, Cole, you're going to be Adele today. You're going to be Beyonce today and just come in and sing. And it turned out what it ended up being. And so we've always taken that approach to some Cole songs, but that was the first time I was gone for the weekend and I came back and him, Joey and Seb did this amazing demo recorded it live one take in our we have this little warehouse thing that we do for like really stripped down stuff and where we keep our gear and it was the first time i was like well fuck i didn't even it's done <laughs> you know it's done and you just did this thing like we had just watched skepta play at reading and leeds and we were like wow this is the most punk thing i've ever seen in the last 10 years way more punk than any fucking rock band that show had a pit people were seeing it was tough, but it was fun, and it was approachable. It was amazing, and we were like, wow, that's what we need to do. And how do we make a song with, like, a sort of, like, a, a grime beat or, like, a, any kind of, like, different beat? Like, rock is so, like, like, let's do something else. Lose, lose, lose. All of a sudden, it was, like, this gift, and Cole and Joyance have delivered, and I was really grateful for all of them. And it's like, okay, cool, this is going to put us on the map. We're going to go this way. Next, we talked about the song Bad Allergies and how the Rolling Stones' amazing collaboration with John Luke Godard on the movie Sympathy for the Devil had an effect on it. Bad Allergies took so many different routes, and I had just watched the Rolling Stones documentary. It was perfect, and I'm still not set on where we landed with Bad Allergies. It's always going to be, in songwriters are always going to be like that. I'm, I love how it turned out, but there's just so many things you could do with it. It's a different kind of song for us, but we finally just decided Rich was gone for the day, so it was just us and Martin. We were like, you know what? We don't do this often. Let's go smoke a joint. It's 2 p.m. on a Monday. Let's go smoke a joint. Come back inside and see what we do. And immediately it was like everything shifted. And the original idea with Bad Allergies was to have the same intro as this one Frank Ocean song. Um, uh, the one that's like, I will always love you. 
He's obviously way better at singing it. It's called Godspell. Or Godspeed. Godspeed. Not Godspell. That was the original idea. So that's where like the guitar, like the, like the crescendo comes from. But then Martin chopped it up in the coolest way. And we were just like so high. And we decided, you're like, let's do something different, man. We came up with that the first like 20 seconds. And we were like, wow, like we don't do that. We don't stop in the middle and then keep going. Like, we've never done that in his songs. This is rad. And then Seb, for I think the first time in his career as a bassist, like, really... Not the first time. He's always done great as a bass player. But this was his first breakout moment, I think, as a bass player. He came up with the entire thing himself to bass line. Oftentimes, it'll be like, Cole and I will give him the basic thing, and he'll add a few things. But the entire... The swing of it, the line of it, it was beautiful. And it really was like his... He became a butterfly that day. <laughs> he didn't smoke. He's straight edge. But we were all just really, really stoked on it. And there's also, like, this crazy roadhouse sample in there that, if you listen again, you'll hear it's like a... It's like a like a gated hi-hat sample, but it's like it's really like harsh, but it's low in the mix. And it's kind of adds this kind of like almost like industrial component to it. But our idea with that song was to combine like a little bit of an Oasis vibe to Blur, which is kind of sacrilegious because they like hate each, each other. other yeah. But we we're like, how do we do both of them at the same time? We really didn't smoke like at all in the rest of the studio, but just like that day. And it worked. And live, it's actually, we do it a little bit different. We go a little bit more of the Oasis vibe live, but I think people are really liking it. Lastly, I wanted to talk to those who know them best about what they think makes the band unique. This is Pete Ganbarg. I think these guys are some of the most genuine 23-year-olds that I've ever met. They have a real, fresh, authentic outlook on the world. They understand the complexity of the world. They understand the problems facing us. But they are all in say something about it, do something about it, and lead the people listening to their music and seeing them live in concert to a place where hopefully the world is better off. And here's Martin on what he sees in the band. Um, I think Swimmers is unique in that I feel like they're kind of on the vanguard of a new youth-centered energy in music. Whereas I think a lot of like the youthfulness of music we've seen in the mainstream is kind of in pop. And now everyone's kind of following this model of like this kind of pop star that has this Instagram account, you know, and has this kind of profile in the world before you really understand who they are as an artist. And I feel like Swimmers is a band that's like kind of going back to the idea of like, no, we're here to make music and we want you to understand who we are before any of the other stuff matters, you know? I mean, I've been in LA for 12 and a half years and like, I've always worked on bigger records with labels, you know, usually established bands. So it's, it's really cool to see a band that's kind of starting where they are, you know, at that level and being that impassioned about it. They care about everything. They care about the politics. They care about their role in society and like who they're communicating to and the message they're trying to get out. And like, it's really inspiring to see that from, you know, some kids in their early twenties. And I think that's really, for me, it was like a band that all of a sudden was like, they're obviously inspired by other people but they're doing their their own thing in a world where a lot of people are just kind of doing the same thing
Thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of Inside the Album on your favorite podcast app. Swimmers Berkeley's On Fire is out now.